This is an ABC podcast. There's this sensation you'll be standing up on something high and you have this instinctive feeling like you're going to jump, like it's not that you want to jump, but it's just like, I could jump. Most people, when they have that sensation, they back away. But for Dave Lightfoot, it was different. Dave's favourite thing in the world was to seek out the highest, steepest hills he could find and launch himself off them on his skateboard. For Dave, there was no bigger rush. I wouldn't say I was looking forward to getting hurt, but I was looking forward to doing things where you could get hurt, but you don't. Until you do. That's what happened to Dave. He got as close as you can get to death without dying and then came back. This is Days Like These. I'm Faz Draki. This story is from reporter Sarah McVie. And just a warning, there's a bit of strong language coming up. It's Friday afternoon, Brisbane, 2010. I've just knocked off uni and I'm out the front of my friend Dave's house. He lives in this big old Queenslander on a ridge overlooking the city. And if you turn in any direction, you'll find some of the steepest hills you've ever seen. We're gathering at the top of one of these hills now. There's a few of us there, hanging out, waiting. I'm nervous, even though I've been here before. Dave's about to ride his skateboard full pelt down this hill that's as steep as a roller coaster. He's wearing shorts, a baggy T-shirt. He's got a shaved head. If he comes off, he's got no protection. Dave's calm. He's talking and joking and enjoying the attention. He takes one last check that there are no cars coming. And then he's on his board in the middle of the road. He's kicking hard to take off. And then he's gone. When you do something where there's high-level risk involved, then that's where the injuries come from. And when you land it, the feeling of nailing it, there's adrenaline, there's everything. We watch as Dave goes flying down the hill, picking up more and more speed as he goes. So it's like, okay, this is good. This is a challenge. These are fast and they go up on the other side. So you're going extremely fast down, but then you have this sort of security of slowing down on the other sort of side. He's made it. We're all calling out, impressed, excited, mostly relieved, because no matter how many times I watch Dave do this, it still makes my stomach drop. But Dave's been skating since high school and he's built up to this. He started on the flat, learning to ollie, he progressed to grinding on ledges and stairs, and then he started on hills, building up to longer, steeper ones as he went. Yeah, you just keep doing it every day. And it just gets more and more rewarding because you're getting that sort of fix and you get better and better and it's like fuck yeah I'm good at this so that was essentially the core of what I did I wasn't really into street wasn't really into ramp but I was very into bombing hills. Dave says that when he bombs hills everything else melts away it's just him and the board and the road and the very real risk that it could all go horribly wrong. You just have to have extreme focus on not dying. What did you think about other people's reactions to the kind of hills that you would bomb? Oh, it's great. When someone says, no, I won't do that, you're like, yeah, well, I will. And you're like, it's one-upmanship. Yeah, sense of pride. I've got this skill. And I guess for not exactly the first time in my life, but the first time skating, just going, I'm better than anyone I know. And that's a rare thing. And the rarest thing in my life in anything is to impress yourself. Did you wear a helmet? Uh, No. (laughs) No. 
I never wore a helmet. You never do. Like, it's who's going to wear a fucking helmet skating? Like, it's just dog factor is like, I mean, if you're doing some big ramps or something, cool, wear a helmet, but it's like you're not going to rock around the streets with a fucking helmet on. <laughs> Dave skated everywhere he went, to uni, to his job as a graphic designer, to the house I lived in at the bottom of one of these very steep hills. He'd arrive sweaty and out of breath and full of adrenaline, and his energy was contagious. His girlfriend, Ida, remembers being drawn to it when she first met him in Brisbane. He had, like, a big spark in his eyes, I felt, and he was very creative, lots of fun, and, yeah, a lot of energy. Ida's from Norway and had come to Australia to study and then stayed. When she met Dave, she was working as a graphic designer too and making jewellery in her spare time. She remembers feeling carefree and adventurous, and Dave says that was one of the things that attracted him to her. They fell for each other straight away. They'd go swimming in waterholes just outside the city, and Dave would show off, jumping off the highest rocks he could find. And Dave burnt Ida Mix CDs of his favourite songs. We're super in love, and we had this, like, really kind of nice time, also probably because I knew he was going and felt, like, really special. Part of the reason it felt supercharged was that David made up his mind before he'd met Ida to move to Berlin. He already had the flights. So a few months into their relationship, he was gone. Yeah, it was just a big open sort of question. What if our relationship would last or not? In 2012, Ida took the plunge and joined Dave. They lived together in a tiny apartment in the wild party part of Kreuzberg. And they loved it, except for one thing. Berlin's excruciatingly flat as there's slopes but there's no hills so it was just kind of skating street there's a couple of places you can go there's this old airport so that kind of thing but yeah there's no hills so you can't really bomb hills dave missed the roller coaster hills of brisbane but he made do and he found other very berlin ways to get a high dave and Ida hadn't really planned on staying but as the years passed they got more and more settled and eventually it felt like home They found jobs they liked, made friends, and were happy together there. They'd been living together in Berlin for four years when Dave got the chance he'd been waiting for. He was finally going to be able to bomb a hill again. They had a friend visit from out of town, so as you do, they showed him around. And one of the places they decided to go was Teufelsberg. It's a former US spy station from the Cold War era, built on a huge artificial hill known as Devil's Mountain. Oh, here's my opportunity for the first time in like six years to actually go down a proper hill. It's Devil's Mountain, which has a very appealing ring to it. It was March 26, 2016. Spent the day there kind of hanging out and it was like, okay, let's go. I wanted to do it from top to bottom so I could just be like, I've been from top to bottom. Can you describe the day? Was it sunny? Was it Beautiful, hot? Beautiful sunny day and... um we were going to go out for a big night and, like, everything was well-planned. Yeah, so great mood, great day, perfect weather and perfect day to go for a skate down the hill. How did you prepare? Uh, <laughs> I didn't prepare. So here's the thing. Six years before, I've been good at this and I was really good, so I had the confidence of that person. I wasn't thinking about it as anything but a hill to mong. Ida and one of their friends agreed to follow behind him in the car so they could pick him up when he was done. We just saw them kind of set off and I just saw, like, Dave disappear around the corner. 
all I remember is kicking hard for a long time. And then I remember going for a while and then it's cruising. I remember there's a certain um, point when I'm coming down and I'm actually just on the board at this point, not kicking. And there's just, there's trick, because it's tree line place. And so you have a very good understanding of your speed and kind of going, oh my God, I'm going fast. The trees were flying past Dave in a blur as he took a corner. You really feel the corner because you've got pace and you need to really lean into it. He was back where he loved to be, focused and absolutely flying. And that's the last thing I remember, just fun is the last thing I remember, having a lot of fun. And then we come around the curve and we see Dave like lying on the ground. And like my first thought was kind of like, is he like joking with us? As Ida got closer though, she realised Dave wasn't joking. Dave is bleeding from his head, from his ear. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, like, don't be shocked, like, don't scare Dave. Ida called for someone to get an ambulance while she held on to him on her lap. He was saying to us, like, I don't want to die. Ida and their friends tried to keep Dave still. He was conscious but really out of it and was becoming more and more agitated. He tried to escape into the forest. When the ambulance came, he tried to fight the paramedics off. Ida now knows that he was agitated because his brain was swelling, but at the time she was just desperate for him to stay still. Eventually the cops had to come and hold Dave down while the paramedics sedated him. Finally, they were able to rush him to hospital. Ida followed behind him in a second ambulance. I just remember feeling like the drive was taking way too long and I thought that the sirens were not loud enough. When Ida talks about that day, she becomes incredibly calm, like she's back there in shock, trying not to scare Dave, trying to make everything okay. I wasn't sure if he was going to be alive when we got to the hospital. When they got to the hospital, Dave was rushed into ICU on a stretcher. Ida waited by the door all day for news. After hours of waiting, the doctors told her she could finally see Dave. He was covered in bandages. He was on like a ventilator, um, respirator, I mean. He had all these cords coming from like his arms and his legs and his head and everywhere. And I think like the most kind of um, intense part to me in the beginning was all the beeps. You know, there's the monitors and everything flashes and beeps and sometimes some alarm goes off and we would just jump at every little sound and I was just like trying to write down what the different numbers said and try and make sense of what was going on. Ida sat with Dave until the early hours of the morning when one of the nurses told her it was time to go. At 4.15am when she finally got home she wrote an email to Dave's family. It finishes, Dave is so strong in every way. Tomorrow, when he wakes up, he will certainly not feel great, but we will all feel relieved when he wakes up again. The next day, when Ida visited, she bought Dave socks and a toothbrush. She thought he'd need them when he woke up. But Dave didn't wake up. Ida needed to contact his mum and dad again. Yeah, then I had to start to figure out what to tell Dave's parents because I didn't want to tell them that everything is going to be okay and... Um, I was worried what might happen like to Dave and if I 
you know, paint the picture in too nice of a way. What if he died? Then they wouldn't get to see him or they wouldn't, they would feel kind of, you know, deceived. But I also didn't want to scare them. Dave's mum was on the next plane to Berlin. For Ida, the hospital had become the whole world. She lived by the rhythms of visiting hours and staff changeover. She learned the language of doctors and their operations and medications. She learned that when Dave came off his skateboard, his skull had fractured and his brain had swelled. She learned the doctors had taken off a large part of his skull, around 15 centimetres squared, and put it on ice before reattaching it. He was in a coma, and when she asked when he would wake up, she learned the doctors didn't know. He just said, there's no way of telling. There's a sort of two-week period that is critical in terms of treatment. Um, and if he wakes up, we don't know what condition he might be in. And then I was like, well, if he wakes up, if he survives all of this, then um, that's still a chance, right? But he was like, yeah, but... There's like cases like Mikael Schumacher, the Formula One driver, who didn't really wake up. Ida sat with Dave every day, day in, day out. She hardly spoke to anyone about what she was going through. She kept a tight lid on her feelings to the point where, on day nine, when she did see a friend, the friend was like, how are you this calm? I was like, I had to keep it all um, together, otherwise... Like, when the sort of dam is, like, breaking, it would just all fall apart. It was just too much. Ida held Dave's hand and played him music. And finally, on day 11, when she played him that mixtape he'd made her when they started dating, something changed. Dave's eyes flickered open. Oh, it was amazing. Like, it was really incredible to know that he was there because I missed him so much because, like... He was the person that I felt like the only person I could talk about how difficult the situation was, but he was you know, not there. So it was really amazing when he did sort of start to wake up and we had like little bits of progress. In her journal that night, Ida described how she'd held Dave's hand and asked him to open and close his eyes and that he could do it. She said she was so happy to be able to look into his eyes again but that she'd read enough by now to know this stage could drag on. Still, she wished it would be like the movies, where the character just sits up and asks, what happened? Dave was opening his eyes at times and learning to move his hands, but as he got more and more conscious, he also got more agitated. He was hooked up to machines, had a cannula in his arm, and he'd claw at himself and try to remove the cords. At night, the doctors would bandage Dave's hands down so that he couldn't pull at the tubes attached to him. Like, I remember one time specifically where I saw him and I felt like he was a little, like, animal in a, in a cage or something. And I felt, like, so sad and I was wondering, like, will he, you know, recover? Like, will he become himself again? On day 18, Dave started breathing on his own but was still connected to oxygen. On day 20, he stood up and held on to his bed, but he still wasn't able to talk. Then, on day 21, after weeks of Ida waiting to hear something from Dave, in a very quiet, croaky voice, through a special speech valve for his trachea, he asked for something. He said, uh, can I please have a massage? Such good manners. <laughs> <laughs> I think he had a please in there. 
As Dave's speech started to come back, it was sometimes hard to make up the words. But Ida understood him, and she started recording him and sending the videos to his friends back in Australia. I feet in my car. Hello, my booze. Like boo, I mean boo as in my love. Mm-hmm. You two are my loves. I don't have many other than either. <coughs> I wish I had something very clever to say. I'll just say very clever. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, well, we can do lots more. We can do some shorter ones later, too. down to half a second. No. <laughs> so that I can seem not like a dickhead. Not seeming like a dickhead. On day 43, Dave walked to the bathroom. One small step for Dave, one giant leap for Ida. Every little step was to us, like, you know... A moon landing, I think, uh, you know, when he was able to breathe unassisted or when he was able to, like, say the few first words or when he could, like, do some walking in therapy. Like, everything was incredible to us. In those first months, Ida was seeing progress almost every day, but it was two steps forward, two steps back. The doctors detected the bone flap, which is the part of the skull they'd reattached, had become infected. I can really remember extremely distinctly. I remember the partitions that were in this person's office and everything, the yellow corridor, yellow floor in the corridor, and waiting to be told whether I had an infected skull, like brain. Hearing that it was infected and just being devastated because it's like I know now I have to go into sort of emergency again and get my whole skull refitted. That was like one of the worst times for me, because I could see that Dave understood what it meant, that he needed to have another surgery again, and he was really mm, broken by that news. We both cried um, because it was such a major setback. Dave started going backwards fast. He stopped walking, became bedbound, started losing weight and trembling all the time. After that moment in the yellow corridor, Dave says his memories start getting really warped. I had no distinction between dreams and reality. He got super delusional and he would hallucinate. I'd be like, they've moved all the rooms around. Dave saw a black dog wandering around his hospital room and a face in Ida's sweater. I can still see the kind of islands. Everyone had their little islands, like sand islands, water around them. Yeah, he had all sorts of ideas that he was, you know, maybe being experimented on. I thought I was being turned into Robocop or something because I had all these tubes coming out of my head with blood and whatever else. He would always tell me, like, take me home with you. And I would be like, yeah, I mean, I would love to, but you're here, you're getting your medication. I tried to escape, so I found some keys. I was like, okay, I'm going to get out. And then I went down these corridors and found a door and I was trying to open it, had the key. I remember pushing on the door and I could see what I thought at least was a bus station or train station. I was like, I've just got to get to there. He had a key that belonged to the night side table, but he thought that was the key to the hospital. And he was trying to lock himself into the nurse's station and they were all like, what is he doing? 
yeah, they had to like kind of sedate him a few times to get him to sleep. It's a messy period. Everything was on this kind of flat plane of existence. I didn't see sometimes I'm dreaming and sometimes I'm not. Because your brain is trying to make sense of what's going on and there's all these gaps. And so it's just filling in the blanks. Dave had that part of his skull taken off and refitted a total of three times because it kept getting infected. Each time Dave had an infection and then surgery, Ida would watch him go backwards, right back to the beginning. Each time he had to learn to breathe, to stand, to walk, to speak, all over again. And there were times in the first six months where his decline was so sharp, it wasn't clear that he would come back. But Ida hardly even allowed herself to entertain those thoughts and doubled down on her steely positivity. You do get almost a bit um, superstitious <laughs> because I guess it's like all that's left. So I was strongly in this belief that we had to not give up and show Dave that he was going to be fine and talk about how things were going to be when he was out of the hospital and all the things we're going to do. Ida told Dave they would hang out with his friends when he got out and they'd go for Tom Kargai at this place they loved. They had tickets to go to Greece on holidays before the accident and Ida told him how they'd go soon. Then in January, 10 months after Dave's accident, the doctors decided he needed yet another procedure. They wanted to alter the amount of pressure on his brain by adjusting his shunt, which is a tube he had attached to his brain to drain fluid away from it. And Ida remembers hearing Dave's speech improve overnight. Hey buddy, fucking great to hear from you. Get that video, that was really nice of you. This video is from January 2017, just after the shunt procedure. I've got seven hearts. Mum gives me hearts every time I get up and get showered before she gets here. So I've got seven of those. So Dave's having showers seven days a week now. Um, <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I do have one interesting story. That was that I listened to 36 Chambers with my mum. And their mum's like, what the hell is this Wu-Tang? I was like, it's my favourite rap group, Mum. You should know them. Um, so Mum and me listened to 36 Chambers. Mum Googled all the Wu-Tang lyrics and had it open on her phone. And as the music was playing, she was looking and reading the lyrics so she, she could keep up with it, although she didn't understand half of it, you know, because people are busting clips in other people's asses and she's a bit lost. Once the doctors got his speech right, Dave hardly stopped. He remembers words tumbling out of his mouth with no break between having a thought and saying it out loud. Getting his speech back was such a milestone, such an important part of recovery. The problem was, though, that the little pause we have between thinking something and saying something, it was missing for Dave. There was no filter. I remember in hospital asking my sister and her boyfriend, I was like, how much do you guys fuck? And then... um. The other one was a guy walking in the corridor and I was like, you look like a fat hamster or a giant fat hamster. And dad had to try hard not to laugh because he was with me. <laughs> yeah, so. And no one can say he doesn't mean it. No. <laughs> I would say things to my dad that were stories from my past and they were, you don't tell your parents that. 
it started to happen and I could see that was happening. And I was like, well, the best tactic here is just get it all out. Just just say everything so you know you can't say anything worse because you've said all the worst. It's <laughs> not necessarily a good strategy, but <laughs> I wasn't in a position to think too hard about things. As Dave's memories came back to him, he wanted to share them, all of them, all of the time. I was like, yeah, I forget what I just said about two minutes ago and I'm saying the same thing again. And which then led to me to every story, if it's meaningful to me, preface it with, I've probably told you this before, and then test the waters a bit, like this story about that. And then most of the time, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, you've covered that before. Sort of like Alzheimer's, it's the same sort of thing. And as Dave continued to improve, the doctors started talking about a plan to send him home. I started to panic because our old apartment Super tiny, on the fourth floor, no lift. Um, and I just knew that it would be impossible to for Dave to come home there because he couldn't get, like, a wheelchair into the bathroom or anything. So Ida's brother came to Berlin to help her move into a bigger place. They were going back and forth between the apartments, moving clothes and furniture, cleaning the old place, getting the new place ready. And because I didn't come to the hospital that day, Dave called like 22 times. So he will call and I'll explain that I can't come today because I'm moving into the new apartment. Then he'll be like, okay, and we'll say goodbye. And then he'll call like in 20 minutes later. And I just remember my brother being like, does he do that all the time? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And just not kind of thinking that that's a bit like mad. And now, of course, I'm like, yeah, that's a bit... uh, much, but I just sort of thought, like, it's very sweet that he, you know, loves me so much that he just want, wants to call all the time. But yeah, I guess you're just, you become, like, such a big part of their, like, journey that you're not, like, used to normalcy anymore. In March 2017, a year after the accident, Dave was allowed to go home. He had two wheelchairs and a walking stick. He was excited to be getting out. He wanted to sleep in his own bed, see his friends. He felt ready. The whole way, like, it's just been, I'm going to be fine. This is just something I need to go through. This is going to get better. I'm back. From the jump, Dave felt further along in his recovery than he actually was. And so once he was home, he was keen to get on with life, keen to wriggle out of his rehab. He would just try and talk to the psychologist, explaining why he didn't really need therapy, that he needed to sleep in in the mornings. And I was just like, no, 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 no. He needs to go to therapy. Those trips to therapy weren't just important for his recovery, but also for her sanity. For a year, Ida's life had been put on hold. She'd had to change everything about it to focus entirely on his recovery. And they weren't out of the woods. There was no way of knowing if Dave would ever recover to how he was before. Ida needed to be strong for him, but she wasn't immune to the crushing lows that swept over Dave as he came to terms with what had happened. You can hear it in this video message to friends back home. Makala, thank you so much for sharing all those photos and doing those things. Whilst I was sick, it really helps me to know that I have dear friends on the other side waiting for me. Friends that give me a reason to live, which was very important and still is important because 
I keep getting semi-suicidal. I'm not actually suicidal. I just have these moments where I get extremely down about things and I just think I can't be bothered anymore. And then, then you can. But then I can be bothered because of people like you. So I'm extremely grateful to your presence in my life. I'm going to get Ida to move the camera out now because it's showing my triple chin. Oh, sorry. Which is this not is better great. angle. Yeah. <laughs> I just have a long nose. <laughs> anyway, so this is puffy-faced, scabby old Dave signing out. A year after Dave came home from the hospital, he went out alone for the first time. He walked to the shops down the road while Ida waited for him to come back. What would have once taken maybe five, ten minutes took more than an hour. Ida fought the urge to go looking for Dave, and eventually he came home. Dave says that in those early days, he lost his sense of direction. He says the graffiti in Berlin helped him navigate because it was more memorable than the street signs. It wasn't until 2019 that things started to come into focus for him. So that's years of a blur. Like, it all seems quite dreamlike now. Years where Dave went to speech and walking therapy, started back at work on a return-to-work scheme, saw friends. Years where he kept pushing forward with the same sort of determination he had when he was learning to bomb hills. It's like, fuck me, you, you really, really nailed it this time. Like, it's not something that people often come back from. From that level of severity, any sort of recovery is quite good, but where I've come to is, yeah, I'm proud of myself. I'm like, shit, that's, that's a solid effort. When did you start to feel like how you feel now? Really recently. It is for the first time, like, catching up with yourself, like, really recently, like, in the past year, I guess, is where it started to become, okay, I'm back, and it's not just my opinion this time, it's everyone else around me, and going, yeah, you're back. We just both had to, like, get over the the trauma that happened to both of us, and, um, like, we also had to kind of get a bit out of the the story because we were both like kind of victims of that. Yeah, I feel like now Dave is like back to who he was. Dave and Ida still live in Berlin, just not quite in the thick of the party anymore. Dave's back at work, writing and drawing for a streetwear label, pouring all his spare time into countless creative projects. And he's making plans for the future. He wants to save for a house, live by the ocean and learn to surf. Ida is soaking up the normality of their lives. She's got time now to focus on her jewellery business, see her friends and family, and travel. They're still looking forward to their trip to Greece. When I sat down with Dave in Brisbane to record this story, it wasn't that far from the hills he used to hurl himself down. He won't be hitting them anytime soon, but he's glad he did. Is there another way you can get that rush you used to get from bombing hills? Ah... Not that I'm aware of yet, but I'll find it. That was Dave Lightfoot and Ida Molander with their friend, reporter Sarah McVee. Our sound engineer was Hamish Camilleri with original compositions by Jack McLean. Our executive producer is Sophie Townsend. This episode was produced on the lands of the Turrbal and Yugara people.
I'm Fazadraki, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Jonathan Green, and I'm in Paris with a burning question. Taxi! Yeah, bonjour. How many Parisians live within five minutes of a bakery? No, it's not Oh. Oh, really? Uh, well, that's extraordinary. Thanks. No, no, no. This and other secrets of the world revealed in a new season of Return Ticket, the travel podcast that takes you on journeys of the mind. In this new season, we're off to Paris, Venice, Kuala Lumpur, Las Vegas and Timbuktu. Yes, that's right, Timbuktu. Where even is that? Return ticket. Subscribe on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.